Hello and welcome to Sam for Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I am excited to welcome Emily Beach. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Great. Yeah, can you please just go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, I'm a software developer and technical coach based in Sweden, although I grew up in the UK, and I'm delighted to be invited to talk to you. Great, great. Can you maybe give us, you know, some of the stepping stones through your career about becoming a coach and your experiences? Yeah, so my career began in 1998 when I graduated with a degree in engineering and I got a job as a software developer doing Java. Then quite soon after that in 2000 I moved to Sweden with my husband. He got a job here and we've been in Sweden ever since. And I landed really on my feet actually because the first job I got in Sweden it was a startup and it was Java again, and it was using extreme programming. So I really landed in this team of very good software developers, and we were learning to write unit tests together and talking to the customer frequently in pair programming. And it was such a good experience. So I really got onto this whole agile and testing thing pretty early. Since then, basically, I got a job doing some Python and worked as a consultant for many years and started training people in test-driven development using the coding dojo. I wrote a book about that in 2011, the Coding Dojo Handbook. And then I spent some time doing some architecture and test strategy. And then in 2018, I was invited to pair coach with Llewellyn Falco in the US. And he showed me how he was teaching teams, not just test driven development, but like refactoring and handling legacy code and stuff. And I was so inspired by that. I thought, right, well, this seems to work. So I started doing technical coaching myself and that turned into another book that was published about a year ago, Technical Agile Coaching with the Salman Method. So that's what I do these days. I do technical coaching. Great. And we are going to dive much deeper into that. I mean, let's say in my early 40s, and for some of the people who have been doing you know, software development for a while, there are paths that they can take. They can move into the management. They can stay in the software and doing hands-off stuff. And going into these waters of like, teaching people, but as like maybe a main or a side thing in their career as coaching, that's something, let's say, less frequent. Did it came just natural to you over the years because you were just, you know, helping a lot of people and you enjoyed that or how you ended up in those waters? Well, I mean, I guess at first it was kind of self-preservation. I was ending up on a team where I was the only one writing any tests and I was like, this is not fun. You know, the tests are breaking all the time and nobody cares. So I've got to do something to persuade my colleagues to pay attention. So it kind of grew from there, really, that I found I actually quite liked holding little trainings and dojos. So that's kind of where it started. And I mean, the thing is, I could have gone into coaching full time, but I think I really like writing code. I didn't want to give that up. And I still don't. So this thing with coaching and teaching, it's a way to have influence and be senior and show technical leadership without losing touch with the code. It combines this, you know, people stuff with technical stuff in a really fun way, in my opinion. And I think I have more influence as a coach than I would have as an individual contributor. I mean, I certainly meet more teams and interact with more people. Yeah, yeah. And having your feet in both areas is super important, I think. Now that you said that, because I did meet a lot of people doing trainings, you know, one way or another. And it can really show if this, you know, guy or girl... (laughs) haven't, you know, touched the code in a while. Yeah, 
you know, this industry moves so fast, you really have to be writing a lot of code to keep up with all the latest frameworks and tools and languages and everything. We've just released the CICD for Monorepos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the Monorepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a Monorepo first CICD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a Monorepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo dash CICD. Now that we cover this as a part of the history, we're going to talk about it a bit later, but you also published the book about Sama method. We don't know anything about it. Please tell us. Well, I made up the name, so you can be certainly forgiven for not having heard of Saman method. It's, I just felt it needed a name for the way I'm working, just to make it easier to find out more information and find other people who are doing this kind of thing. The name came long after actually the coaching approach, which I've been doing for a few years. But yeah, as I said, Llewellyn Falco was a great inspiration for me. And there's a whole community of coaches who are doing ensemble working, or people call it mob programming as well, with teams as a way of transferring knowledge and skills and writing better code and having more fun at work. So that's a major part of the Salmon Method is, is doing ensemble working. That's the whole team programming together on one task and delivering that code home trying to get everyone in the team to contribute to that piece of code so that we get the best of all of us into it. And as a coach, you're there to kind of facilitate that, to make sure that the team is able to collaborate in that way, but also to contribute what you know about how to write tests and how to refactor safely so that the team learns those things as well. So that's one part of the Salmon method, working in the production code with the team in an ensemble. And then the other part is, well, if you're going to learn something like TDD or refactoring, there's some theory, there's some skills, there's some vocabulary, there are exercises that you can do that will help you to learn those things in a more effective way than just, you know, serendipity when it comes up in your production code base. So the other part of the Saman method is these short teaching sessions where we do exercises and we learn skills and we practice, basically. So those are the two main parts of the Saman method. As a coach, I come to a team and I facilitate ensemble working, and I lead learning hours. And I don't do that full-time. The team has to have time to do their other stuff, you know, get tasks done out with me not being there. So as a coach, I can work with several teams concurrently, or I can work part-time, and I can go to a lot of conferences and stuff if that's what I feel like doing. As a coach, it's a great lifestyle in a way. And for the teams I'm coaching, it's the most effective way I know so far for introducing these kind of technical practices in teams that aren't using them. As you were speaking about this, I was kind of contrasting this with my experiences and how I learned it and how I helped other people, you know, to just get on that train of like TDD, but I would say also writing tests in general, because that's also where our industry, you know, kind of tends to struggle. Can you maybe talk more about the timeline that you are seeing with the teams? Because introducing anything new, you know, the bigger the team is, the more it takes, you know, you have, you know, people with various, you know, experience levels and skills and motivations, you know, to embrace something new. So I guess it, it varies a lot, but let's say once you come in and there is a 
team that says, yes, we want this, <laughs> how it rolls then? Yeah, there's a lot of variety. I mean, most of the teams I go into and I start working with, they already have some unit tests and often other you know, integration tests and stuff as well, and continuous delivery pipelines. So often they've got basic infrastructure. And also quite often I'll find that maybe there's one person in the team who is a bit more experienced and actually does really know their stuff already and can write good tests and do refactoring and stuff. But at the same time, the rest of the team is much more junior or perhaps less experienced with these techniques. And it's not always easy for even one experienced person in a team to kind of spread that. And of course, sometimes you come to a team and nobody knows anything about this and they've been told to write tests, but they've no idea how to write good tests. So as a coach, I come in to these kind of situations and with the ensemble working, it's if the knowledge is already in the team and somebody there is experienced, then as a coach, it's just a question of teaching collaboration techniques, really, so that they can learn to spread that knowledge and learn from one another. That's the biggest thing I contribute some of the time, you know, just the collaboration techniques, which is great in itself. I mean, ensemble working is a fantastic technique, even without the rest of the learning hours and stuff that I do. But then, of course, if there's really a lack of knowledge about you know, how to design good tests and what TDD actually is even, I mean, it's not just writing unit tests. TDD is a design technique. It's a way of developing code and tests together. Then there's a lot, perhaps a lot more focus on the learning hours at first of what is TDD, you know? And quite often you come in and the code base is, is built in such a way that it's really hard to write good tests. And then at that point, it's a lot more like, well, can we do safe refactoring here? Even with the tests that we've got, perhaps we're better off focusing on the refactoring techniques before we try and learn too much about testing. So the approach I take does vary according to the situation the team is in, definitely. Clear. And in ensemble practice, you mentioned your communication, let's say techniques or methods. Can we perhaps dive a bit deeper there? Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever tried to program with like six developers in the same room with one computer. I haven't. No, <laughs> but I think you can imagine that if you just try and do that with no kind of guidance, it could get a little bit, you know, chaotic. Yeah, you need someone to supervise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because software developers, everyone has an opinion about what the code should be and different ideas about where we should start and what we should focus on. And, you know, so a lot of the ensemble working technique is just working out how should we talk to each other in a way that actually means that we're collaborating and not fighting with each other. So, um, when I'm teaching it to a team that hasn't done it before, we'll go through, well, there are some roles. And if you have this role, then you should say this. And you have that role, you should say this. And otherwise you're quiet. So it's kind of like, I'm quite strict at the start. And then when you've got the hang of it a bit, you can start to loosen up the roles a bit. So the way I teach it is that the person with the keyboard who's controlling the computer, that's the typist. They are typing in the code that the rest of the team has decided on not the code that they have in their head that they've decided on. That's kind of important. The person with the keyboard is not driving the direction. They're not making the decisions. They are just typing in the code. So that's the first thing. <laughs> and then the other thing is that in order for the typist to know what to write, they need to get some clear instructions from the rest of the team. So we have the spokesperson who is called the navigator. And they're the person who is supposed to be primarily directing the whole ensemble and making the decisions. And they, of course, need to get help and input from the rest of the team, but they should be the person kind of initiating that so that everyone else is mostly quiet until they get asked. 
or unless they really, really have to say something. <laughs> and then, of course, you rotate these roles so that you don't get completely stuck and one person taking over the whole time. We've just released the CICD for Monorepo's ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the Monorepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a Monorepo-first CICD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a Monorepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo CICD. And what's the duration of the session? You do it for an hour and then there is a break or? Yeah, yeah. I would definitely take a break every hour for at least a few minutes. But when I'm coaching a team, we normally do a two-hour session on the ensemble. And I think if you're a beginner, that's a nice length, two hours with a short break in the middle. And then when you've got used to the technique a bit, maybe you can vary that. But yeah, that's a good place to start, two hours. Yeah, and on the topic, okay, what we are going to work on? Because they have much deeper insight into their code base. I understood that you are working on their code base. So this is not something which is, you know, examples or, you know, fictional. Yeah. I mean, if you've really never done ensemble working before, it can be useful to begin with toy code Carter's exercises, just because it makes it so much easier to focus then on the communication patterns rather than the code. But you do progress. Yeah. As a coach, I'm hoping to get to the point quite soon that we can go into their code base. The thing is with us, something like refactoring and TDD, you can do it on the example code relatively easily. After a few sessions, you can be kind of competent. But then you go to your production code and suddenly it's like, wow, this is so much harder. And that's the point where you really need somebody with a bit of experience like me to come in and help just say, okay, this is not straightforward, but trust me a bit. Let me navigate for a minute and help you get started with this test. I think we need to focus on refactoring, you know, and try and prompt them into doing in small steps and committing often. But yeah, you need to get some assistance, I think, in a lot of production code situations from someone with experience. Yeah, clear. And then this would go on for like once, twice per week and then for a couple of weeks or? Yeah. So, I mean, when I started doing this, it was like, we'll do two weeks, 10 days, and then we'll have a break and then come back and do another 10 days. But I found that it works better for me to spread it out more, 10 days over three weeks, 10 half days, in fact. And then I'm working with one team now where we're just like doing one session a week. So I think frequency is up for negotiation. It's partly how quickly the team wants to get input and how much they are managing themselves, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm asking primarily because there is that moment when you're learning something and you think you get it. And then, oh, like a uh, month and a half later, oh, now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the engagements I have with teens, I mean, I would like it to be more long term so that, like, as you say, when you realize, ah, now I get it, or actually now I'm stuck, that the coach is still somewhere available and you can still get some help. Yeah, exactly. If I would be want to receiving the training and all that, I would want, you know, can I call you a month after? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Learning takes time. It takes practice and effort. And actually, it's not just learning new skills. It's a whole culture change that you're trying to get. When you've got an agile team that really understands TDD and refactoring and working in small steps and incremental design and all this, that's a team 
culture as much as skill. It's a way of working that is so embedded in the habits of that team. That's just the way they work. And that kind of um, culture change doesn't happen after two weeks with a coach or a two-day training course. It's a much longer-term kind of prospect. So you need a bit of continuity and somebody to be, you know, pushing for that. Yeah. And those cultural patterns, I do remember, like, I mean, pretty much when GitHub introduced pull requests, then I think majority of the, let's say, civilization got access to code reviews as, like, you know, really accessible, you know, and a good tool to do that. I remember even, you know, back then some people, you know, taking just those reviews, like, you know, kind of personal, but, you know, not on all that communication patterns. It also depends how someone is saying that maybe this function sucks. <laughs> and, you know, here are the ways that you can potentially explore. And those communication patterns, and you're tossing the ball, you know, my court, your court, you know, let's navigate this. Sometimes without face-to-face time can be a challenge. I assume that we progressed further and that is widely accepted. But in terms of those soft skill patterns, do you sometimes have to intervene also and help people improve communication? Of course. I mean, yeah, teamwork. Software is built by teams these days and teams need to be able to communicate in order to collaborate. I mean, this is a constant challenge for me as coming in as a coach as well, just getting accepted by the team as, you know, somebody is worth listening to. So um, there's all those soft skills and culture and communication. It's really important. And I won't just drop into a team and say, right now I'm coaching you. I always try and get to know them first, find out about their situation and try and discuss with them the challenges they're seeing and where I might be able to contribute something. We started here talking about code reviews. I mean, ensemble working is kind of a constant code review. It's kind of intense. Yeah, real-time code review. Yeah. You need good people skills and good relationships for it to work smoothly. Yeah. And I think that it's widely known and hopefully also accepted. I mean, just that element of doing as, you know, dojos or kata or like doing something over and over, you know, is a small thing and then improving over time. I was introduced to that maybe on second year of my career. So let's say two years after I finished university. And during my university, it never crossed my mind <laughs> to solve one problem, you know, write a function, class, whatever element, you know, entity of software over and over, <laughs> you know, and got better at it. So maybe you can also, perhaps for some listeners who are not aware of it or haven't tried it, introduce that concept. Yeah, why would you do that? Why would you, if you were given a university exercise, why would you do it more than once? Yeah. The thing with code carters, what you're training is not your ability to solve a problem or to demonstrate that you can use a technique at all. The techniques that you are learning from a code carter is the way of working. It's the process of producing code and tests. That's what you're actually trying to achieve. And when you're doing exercise at university, you kind of, you do like 10 exercises, all kind of similar until you've shown that you understand the technique. With a code carter, what you're practicing is the flow of code from your brain through your hands into the computer and how you do that in small steps and how you choose the next test to write and how you transform the duplicated messy design into something that's clean and dry in the refactor step and how you do that safely. So it's really the process of programming. It's not the end result that matters. So that's why you do it more than once, because that's actually what you're getting better at. It's not doing 10 different exercises, doing the same exercise 10 times. But the process that you use is perhaps slightly different each of those 10 times. 
and you learn and you get better. When you do it on the code cutter, the idea is you can do it in your production code and it's harder in the production code. But if you can do it really smoothly and without kind of thinking about it in a code cutter, then you've got so much more brain capacity to spend on your actual production code and its quirks and difficulties and understanding what the customer wants. Yeah, and then over time, it, I guess, evolves into pretty much a habit formation, and that's the main idea. And with your coaching, the first part that we talked about, this is very much a team effort and communication effort and all that. And with this second part, which is um, uh, pretty much individual thing, doesn't have to be, can be done through pair programming, right? Over and over again. How that looks in practice? How would you advise doing that? Okay, so I do these one-hour learning hour sessions. I structure them as a lesson that's thought through and is trying to be engaging. And I use the 4C model from Sharon Bowman as a way to structure this and to make it interactive because people learn by doing and by talking much more than they learn by listening and watching. So uh, there's lots more talking and doing than there is listening and watching in that hour. And there'll be a coding exercise pretty much guaranteed. And we'll work on that in pairs usually, sometimes all together. But that is your chance to practice and to see the technique. But of course, it works even better if then afterwards you do it again by yourself and go through it. Not everyone manages that, but still just having an hour a day with the coach doing exercises, great start. Yeah, I remember we were introducing that, like, especially for the people who got their first job, like, you know, when you come in, you have like 45 minutes in a day when you're fresh and, you know, enthusiastic, you know, do that kata one more time which can be a way to approach it. Absolutely. And if you can get that kind of daily bit of practice, you'll soon see some results that make it all worth it for your company that you've put that time because you'll be so much more effective when you're working the production code. At least that's what my experience tells me. Yeah, yeah. We are perhaps, you know, touching upon what you mentioned at the very beginning of your career when you joined that team that, you know, supported you and wanted to, you know, embrace those good practices because you also need kind of almost like a permission if you're not going to come an hour earlier, you know, to invest in your skills in such a systematic way and not just you know, keep churning production code, which might not be production code. Yeah. Investing in people's skills and abilities is worth it. I mean, training, it's worth it. Yeah, I'm thinking about this now. And for regular listeners, I will be probably a parrot because during last couple of episodes, I was touching upon about, you know, the health of the code base and the structure of the testing pyramid and what we are seeing in production. And I also mentioned to you that a lot of teams that I end up talking to are like, you know, pretty much asking for help and advice and experiences in areas what others are doing to tame their test suite. And usually people end up having like um, majority of their tests would be a brittle complex tests that are running through the whole stack of the application, touching a lot of things, although they want to test something perhaps simple. And let's say just two major things. One is just the duration of those tests and you know how flaky, brittle they are. And just five years later, you have a test tube that takes two and a half hours to run. And usually something can fail that you know shouldn't have or should have. So yeah, we'd love to hear your experiences and approach with this. Yeah, I recognize that problem. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, the test pyramid is set up so that what you really want are fast tests that are cheap to maintain. And what you get often is slow tests that are really expensive to maintain and brittle. 
And usually people say the way to get fast, cheap tests is to write unit tests. The thing with that is, of course, you need to design your code in such a way that it's possible to have unit tests. They have to be units. And a lot of code bases aren't built that way, unfortunately. So if you're in that situation where you haven't got units and your tests are all big and slow and brittle, it's very annoying to have someone come to you and say, right, well, you need to write unit tests. Because <laughs> you're like, yeah, but that's really hard. I can't do that. There's a technique that I've been using a lot lately. Well, not just lately, approval testing. This is a technique that people I know, including Luala Falco and my husband, Jeff, have been pioneering this way of designing tests. And I'm really excited about it right now because I think it presents a kind of a middle way between slow and brittle tests and unit tests. But it does involve architecting your system slightly differently so that you can extract these kind of big units, I guess, or subsystems. And there's a lot more to be written about this, but I'm really excited. I'm, I've just been designing a new training for O'Reilly about this technique. I've called it hands-on agile software testing, and it's really about architecting in a way that enables this kind of testability with approval testing. I'm kind of waffling inanely at the moment. I can hear myself, but I'm really excited about this because I think it's going to help so many people, this kind of technique. And it's one of the things I introduce often when I'm working with a team who I can see hasn't got units and refactoring is difficult. This one of the techniques I'll bring in, approval testing. So yeah, I could probably talk for another half hour about that. <laughs> yeah. And for those of us interested in hearing and learning more about this technique, but about you, can you tell us what are some of the ways that we can find and engage? Yes, so I'm on Twitter, Emily Bache on Twitter. And from there, you can probably find the rest of my stuff on the internet. I'm on GitHub and I've got a website also, samancoaching.org, which goes with my book, which is published on LeanPub. And this stuff I was just talking about approval testing. As I said, I'm doing a live online training with O'Reilly and also with Tech Talk, a more in-depth training on the same topic in March. Yeah, follow me on Twitter and hopefully you'll get these kind of links. Yeah, that's a good starting point. Yeah. Emily, it was super interesting to talk about all these topics. Thank you so much. And yeah, good luck. Thank you. It's been really fun talking to you.